This is a Main Hustle Media Podcast. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Jackie O and you're listening to Militantly Mixed. Yo, this is Rashani from the Single Simulcast. And when I'm not making you laugh or making up parody songs, I'm kicking back listening to Militantly Mixed. I would like to acknowledge that the Main Hustle Media podcasts are recorded on the traditional lands of the Karankawa, the Chumash, and the Tongva people, and I wish to pay my respects to the people of those nations, both past and present. Hey y'all, welcome to Militantly Mixed, the podcast about race and identity from the mixed race perspective. I am your host, Charmaine Fury, the busiest mixed race, bi-gender, bisexual, polyamorous, atheist, comic book nerd, cat mom, and two-time Asian American Podcasters Association's Golden Crane award-winning podcaster in this podcasting game. This is episode 159, and I've just had to re-record my intro um, because the one I recorded yesterday for this episode, you could hear that I was pretty down in the dumps, and I just didn't want to carry that energy into this episode. And right now I'm feeling pretty good because I did just get off of my IG Live with my mixed Asian quartet, who you've heard from on this show before, on the Militantly Mixed channel uh, or Instagram page, uh, Rohan Jolie from the Blasian March Naturally Mona Lisa from Naturally Mona Lisa YouTube channel, and Asian So from Mix Present, Mix Made, and um, her own platform, Asian So. And these three people bring me a lot of joy. I love getting a chance to talk to them. And in this particular um, Instagram Live, we focus a little bit on mental health in the activism space. And then we just caught up a lot, too. We ran about a half an hour long. And so I'm, I'm just still vibing off of, off of that and wanted to re-record my intro uh, as a result of that. Um, my guest today is someone that uh, I, I have to admit up front blew me away in conversation. I haven't felt like this awed by a guest in quite a while. And I also did not know who I was about to speak to when, um, when, I opened up that that chat window. The way guests are found on Militantly Mix is you go to militantlymix.com and click on the Be a Guest form, and you fill out that Google form, and I use that as the, the first step pre-screen. And then after that, if you clear that first step, I send an email out in, in mass to a group of people, and I say first come, first serve for, for these 12 slots. Uh, please book these slots, and then those are the ones that go into the next three months' worth of episodes. So I don't have to research my guests in advance or anything like that. They provide me with the information that they provide me with, and then we go from there. And in all cases, I'm in most cases, I'm usually speaking to someone I've never met before. And um, so that was the case here. I was speaking to someone I've never met before, and from the minute we hit record, she just blew me away with her perspective. I didn't know the conversation I was about to have, and there are t- times when... I literally have to cut out dead air because I'm just listening and in awe of what she was talking about that I forgot to speak or interview. <laughs> so my guest today is Shavara Oren. She describes herself as being born a disruptor, which I remember when she said it in our recording gave me chills. And she is the child of two civil rights activists that were in the Martin Luther King Jr. inner circle. She has organized uh, or she's been a part of creation of two uh, allyship organizations white and woke and we are straight allies to support uh, black lives and um, education in how to support black people through these external groups and uh, and queer people with we are straight allies Uh, she's also involved in a documentary that is um, that is based in Washington DC about about the historically black community there. And she does a lot of DEI work out in the world too. She's going to talk about the things that she does in this discussion as well. But yeah, she, I was stunned in some cases into just like listening and not having the next thing lined up to say because I was in awe of our conversation. So I'm really looking forward to sharing that with y'all today. 
Before I do that, I do just want to remind you all about the Pod Inbox, and that is a website that you can go to, podinbox.com slash militantlymix, and leave me a voicemail that I can use on the show. A couple of weeks back, I played a message from Ivy, a former guest of the show and a, a regular listener, who asked the question about what have I consumed, what kind of media have I consumed in which I felt represented or I felt my mix or any mix. So Ivy shared what they're reading right now uh, that reflected them. I shared a few things that reflected me, and then I kicked it to the audience to leave me a message if there's something that you want to share in terms of what media you consume that does reflect your mixedness or mixedness in general in some way makes you feel represented. Um, I haven't heard from anybody yet, but I just want to remind you all, I am going to turn this show into some kind of call and response in some way, shape, or form. So if you would like to answer that question or ask another question or just tell me something about your mixedness, please go to podinbox.com slash militantlymixed and leave me a voicemail. I will be able to respond to you in that or respond to you through the show, play your show, play your recording on the show. And um, I'm really looking forward to that. So please do that. (laughs) I also want to shout out to uh, Patreon sponsors from this last week. Uh, Alejandra actually renewed for another year of an annual sponsorship. So thank you, Alejandra, for doing that. And Isabella um, joined our Patreon sponsors. So now we are back up to 30 patrons. And we have achieved $311 a month in Patreon sponsorship. It is my goal to hit $500 by our anniversary date, our fourth anniversary, which is uh, July 5th. So if you are looking to support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash militantly mixed and sponsor the show as low as a dollar to as high as anything you wish and there are different reward reward levels depending on what you choose and if you would like to see the video versions of the episodes you you will be able to have access to that at the five dollar level it adds up i have several one dollar two dollar three dollar uh sponsors some five dollar sponsors and some 20 and 50 dollar sponsors i mean without that support i i really will struggle to keep the show going so I'm really trying to get to that $500 mark um, and I will keep you all posted on the progress that we make but if you get anything out of the show if it gives you life in any way shape or form please consider sponsoring it uh, because there is a lot of work that goes in to producing this show it is in itself almost a full-time job in addition to all my other jobs and so I could really use the support again that is patreon.com slash And you can also uh, check the show notes because I have links to that in there as well. And I do have some announcements that I'll probably wait until next week to share of some things that are going on. Um, But I'll say the reason why my first intro recording was a bit on the downside is because um, I'm starting to grieve the loss of my comic book shop, even though it was a decision that I made through logic. (laughs) Um, that the that the shop can't sustain two salaries uh, of owners and um, and because the podcasting is starting to get more attention and I would like to be able to participate in those opportunities when they're presented. Um, these are both very good logical reasons to do what I've done. But my day to day experiences of living in that shop, um, I am going to miss that. And so I think the fact that I announced it finally has kind of opened that floodgate up. So I've been I've been in a bit of an emotional roller coaster for the last week while I kind of come to terms with that change. Uh, I I want Gulf Coast Cosmos to succeed and I know that if it if we had to bear the burden of two owners' salaries, that would not happen. And so this is my best way of supporting the the shop success is by not requiring that we try to figure out how to pay me. (laughs) So I'm going to be finding a different way to do that. And I'll be doing that with my travel agency and my continued podcasting. But I've just been really down about it. And uh, as I go through this process, that's, that's why I was down. So, but without further ado, I, I don't want to dim the light of this episode that's coming up. So please join me in welcoming our latest cousin to the Militantly Mixed family, Shavara Oren.
And on this episode, I'm speaking with Shavara Oren. And let's get into it. Why don't you introduce yourself and we'll we'll get into it. Thank you so much, Charmaine, for having me. Thank you so much for bringing me into the space and allowing me to connect. I am Shavara Oren, pronouns she, her, hers. I'm mother, daughter, sister, auntie, sexual violence survivor. I'm an ever-evolving learner. I was born a disruptor. I'm uh, in my professional space. I'm a diversity, equity, and inclusion practitioner, independent filmmaker, public speaker, social entrepreneur, founder of two social justice campaigns, White and Woke, specifically created for white folks who are interested in disrupting structural racism within their own communities. And We Are Straight Allies, a campaign for folks who choose to be allied to the LGBTQ plus community, specifically pushing forward policies and practices that create greater space and equity in housing, employment, and accommodations. And I come to you today specifically from land of the Calusa, Tequesta, and Seminole here in South Florida. But I also come to you as daughter descendant of both immigrant and enslaved. I'm daughter descendant of Mary Isaline Murph, born in the hills where Appalachia meets Mississippi. She was born a free Black woman in 1871. I'm daughter descendant of Rebecca Alleglan, a Jewish immigrant standing by her husband's side. They left a life in Kiev, Russia to pursue the American dream. I'm daughter descendant of Eileen Murph, born in 1901 in Choctaw County, a smart Black girl. She received a scholarship to attend boarding school until sexual violence interrupted her educational pursuits. Eileen escaped to the Delta, bore 14 children, experienced a life of harsh challenge and died at the age of 51. I'm daughter descendant of Carolyn Lynx Oren, born in Detroit in 1920. My grandmother worked 50 years at Efficient Engineering, never rising above the title of office manager. Although she did train the children of the company's founder and supervised 300 engineers while raising five children of her own. And finally, I am daughter descendant of Suzanne Jackson, my mother, who as a 23-year-old social justice activist, recently graduated from the University of Michigan. She was the lead organizer of the 100,000-person march on the Pentagon in opposition to the Vietnam War. Thank you for sharing all of that. That getting to be able to touch back to that many levels of ancestry is, is important. I appreciate that you shared that with us. Thank you for that. So you're, you, we started out your conversation, you said that you were the descendant of two social justice civil rights workers and that they met through that. So you, I love the term born a disruptor. So it's in your DNA. You didn't have a choice. It was, you were going to be disrupting no matter what. How did that, how did you start to see that manifest in your life, whether in childhood or, or as you got older? Yeah, I appreciate that that question. And it's interesting. Um, my father was one of the inner circle of Dr. King today, obviously a, a very appropriate day to be having that conversation as we honor Dr. King's birthday, January 15th. And my father was the first to call for the march from Selma to Montgomery. The film Selma um, that came out just a few years ago, Common, the actor and, and hip hop mm. artist, he, he portrays my father in that okay. film. My father was also the architect of the Birmingham Children's Crusade, which brought us the Civil Rights Act. And he's also the architect, along with Dr. King and Al Raby, of the Chicago open housing work in, in Chicago that ultimately led to the Fair Housing Act. And I was raised by my mom, this white Jewish woman who had been disowned by her family, partly because of her very radical perspective of the world and partly because she chose to have Black children and be in Black community. And as early as I can remember, there were books on socialism and Marxism. I'm named after Che Guevara, so I had books on Che. We had books on Asada Shakur. And our household was very political. Um, I, I think when I, when I think about how this has informed my own life very early on, I was born in D.C. and we moved to Memphis, Tennessee when I was five and we were living with some Black Panthers who primarily were working on educational programs for small humans and providing health care and food for people who grew up economically challenged and disadvantaged and being very clear. I had deep clarity 
about race because our mother made sure that we knew we were black in this world. Or I suppose another way of saying that, um, and I'll share a quick story. When I was six, she was talking about how we could certainly choose identity. It was around the time in school and growing up in Memphis, Tennessee in the early 70s, the question used to be, so what are you or what you mixed with? Like that was the question. It's more sophisticated now, it's what your ethnicity. Um, but that, what are you, what are you mixed with? I was very clear about my lineage. And so our mother said, you, you can choose identity. Know that the world will view you as non-white. And right. with that comes a set of circumstances and experiences that I as a white woman, woman will not know. And as a six-year-old to understand stand profoundly and deeply that race mattered, it is a social construct. And yet those of us who are racialized, right, suffer very real consequence. And so I am deeply appreciative that grounding, I believe has absolutely informed how I think about myself as a black woman and mixed race. I primarily identify as a black woman because my black is political. My yes. black is political, my mixed race, yeah. my mixed raceness is biological and historical mm -hmm. and I hold space and honor all of it, but my black is political. Right. I started to express that same notion only in the last couple of years when I, when I heard Dr. Yaba Blay mention that because she had asked me, she had asked me, but she had told me she had been asking other people, the mixed people, this, why do you identify as mixed? There you go. One drop, Dr. Young. Got it right here. <laughs> and when she, when she expressed the political identity, because she herself is Ghanan American, um, I, I realized that I had always been doing that, but I didn't have that terminology. Mm -hmm. I wasn't thinking about it in terms of that thing. But while my presentation is very ambiguous, I still grew up culturally predominantly black um i put blackness first within experiences within things that i do within actions that i do and so by nature of me saying yes i am a mixed person but i am black first even though my racial identity won't appear that way i do that for for the nuance of experience i guess the importance of nuance and how i act political how i act in voting how i act in in civil rights discussions and organizing is all is all in that way too so i appreciate that that is more of a notion that people are understanding as well and i'm also appreciative of the conversations coming back to explain what the black panthers original mission or that the pr of the black panthers post civil rights era is incorrect <laughs> Yeah. Is basically incorrect that everything was about service to the community, creating programs for children and making sure people were fed, making sure people had backpacks and school supplies and, and yeah. all of those types of things. I'm glad that those those are also starting to be retold because they're so and they're still living Black Panthers incarcerated for actions that were basically starting out with service to their community. But they were I don't have a polite term for it. But they were wrongly convicted of things that they should not have been put in prison for, and it was, it was especially life sentences in particular. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. One of my my uh, most vivid memories as a child centers around that. The police came one day and they they circled the house and they were wearing SWAT gear and there were helicopters overhead and they were banging on the door and, and yelling and there were scoped snipers in trees and they claimed they were there looking for a Panther who had an expired license tag. And I thought we were going to die. Right. And so I think about, you know, as a five and a six year old being um, uniquely aware of race and the consequence of being racialized and being black. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. My, my childhood experience of, um, of, the police is me and my friends in Long Beach hanging out in the park and being picked up for loitering when we're, you know, 13, 12 years old, loitering in a park concept that doesn't make sense to me. And then having my darker skinned friends dropped off in Mexican neighborhoods. This is all pre phones. This is in the early 90s. You know, they didn't have easy ways to get back home. But essentially, just so that the Mexican kids that they pitted against the black kids would beat them up. It used to happen vice versa, too. The Mexican kids would get dropped off in our neighborhoods. And I got dropped off at home because they couldn't identify, the police didn't mm -hmm. identify me racially. And when my black father opens the door, the look of regret on the face of the police officer, like, oh, I should have dropped this one off with the rest of them. And realizing that 
I, there was something going on with me in my appearance that, that separated me from the kids that I was growing up with and that there was work I was going to have to do. I felt, I think I learned early. I, I was responsible for a certain kind of action based off the fact that I was an identifiable black person to non-black people, I guess. But that, that's a, that's a small trauma experience, I guess, because I didn't feel like direct violence to me, but the, the amount of children, like in your experience that would have had guns just drawn on you for something so small as potentially an expired license, why did it warrant that much action against this one person? Um, And how that's still happening and easily swept under the rug um, until, until we as a community, as a big community, a society get up and start speaking against it, Um, which you see at the actions with post George Floyd, but it fades, it fades so quickly the the effort the effort or what they're what they do they they give us one person gets convicted and then the next the next one oh we don't really see how this um how this is enough of a case to claim racial um aggravatedness and stuff like that so anyways going off track you mentioned before when we when we first got talking that you were working on a documentary about about washington do you want to talk a little bit about what that what that project is Sure. It's it's a, a documentary. I started filming prior to the pandemic. It's Why is Washington Still Burning? And it, it centers this group of white folks. Actually, my mom, she was 24, living in Washington, D.C., and she was a, an intern at the Institute for Policy Studies. It's a political think tank. And she was there with Rabbi Arthur Waskow, who's now 89, and they organized a group of 100 white folks on the hills of Dr. King's assassination. The nation was burning, 110 cities literally burning. Right. And they sent 100 white and Jewish folks into the streets. Physicians went out and took care of black bodies that had been beaten and shot by police. Black, white and Jewish attorneys stormed the jails, demanding a lowering of bail. White mothers and Jewish nurses went out into the streets and brought in babies, black babies and children whose parents had been lost. And they did this effort for about a week. I have the original documents. And one of the things that's really striking to me, one, they refer to it as white response to black rebellions. And I so appreciate that, particularly on the hills of George Floyd, when what we heard a lot was riot. We know Dr. King um, had something to say about that. A riot is the language of the unheard. There is distinct difference, I believe. Riot absolutely random act of violence, rebellion, political response to historic inequity. So huge difference there. But that they referred to them as rebellion certainly to me indicates that they had a different level of consciousness. And then they issued the statement that even in the work that I do as a a diversity, equity, and inclusion practitioner is probably one of the more radical statements. They began by saying for 300 years, America has demanded that Blacks be nonviolent, even if whites are violent. Now it's time for white America to repay that historic debt. Mm. And they talk about our government taking aim at its own capital. And I've not seen such a radical, not just written response, but then radical action taken by white people, recognizing that we hold privilege in this way. And it is our responsibility to dismantle the system. And the story has never been told. It's not mm. in history books. I have all the original archives, the letters, mm. the documents. And so I'm very excited, particularly before we lose all of those people, because some right. of those people in that effort, my mother is 78 um, this year. And so some of those people aren't with us anymore. And Mm -hmm. I think it's an important story to tell, especially now when I'm in corporate spaces talking about corporate reparations with CEOs of multi-billion dollar institutions. And that wasn't possible three years ago. Right. Yeah. I feel, I feel that things are moving faster probably than we've experienced in the past. And I think uh, those of us who have lingered from the seventies and eighties, we, we have a little bit of a distrust of where it's going to go, or at least I experienced that for myself where I'm, I get, I get these little patches of hope and then I see it kind of dip. And then I, I'm like, okay, well, we're still doing it, but there is, there are things in which I'm seeing action being taken place. Some of my favorite actions, especially in ally spaces is, the get your people, I forget what their actual thing is called, the get your people women, a series of white women that you can send problematic white 
responses to things to them and then they they tag in so that black white non those, people... are the, those are the white nonsense roundup yeah, yeah those ones those white, ones white um, nonsense roundup i yeah. like actions like that where yeah, it's just like let me back for black lodge you know a whole group of, of folks descendants of of bootleggers and mm -hmm. and um up in the hills and mountains of Tennessee and Kentucky who are having intense conversations about imperialism and mm -hmm. colonialism and actively working to not just build solidarity, but really use the privilege they do hold, recognizing that mm -hmm. they are disadvantaged economically, but that they hold a lot more in common right. with, with oppressed Black folks right. Right, than the system itself. And so right. I get encouraged. And at the same time, you know, Carol Anderson, Dr. Carol Anderson from Emory wrote in her book, White Rage, that white rage is in response to like black excellence and black progress. And so when we even think about 2008, when President Obama was elected, the Southern Poverty Law Center then lifted up that hate groups had increased threefold. And so mm -hmm. there is this resistance. I live in the state of Florida. And just this week, our governor has put forth the woke bill specifically right. to decimate all of the work, all of the education, not just in elementary, high school and university mm -hmm. spaces, but corporate spaces. And mm -hmm. that bill is being heard now. And so there is, I do believe, as Dr. King said, is fierce urgency of now to make sure that we are ever vigilant mm -hmm. and that we can't even Self-care is important and I practice it all the time, but you know, we gotta be careful with these breaths we take because the work is ongoing because the moment yeah. there is progress, there is the opposition, there is the system working to save itself. And so yeah. that's the the tension, the never ending yeah. tension. I think staggered self-care is something where you almost have to stagger it against your cohort, uh, someone from your cohort so that you're always in action, but someone is always getting rest at the same time. Yeah. I think I think that's a another important thing um and rednecks that's another group of people whose pr post their their main movement was taken away from them because they were originally a civil disobedience group as well not group in terms of formation formation group but group of people that experienced disenfranchisement and fought against yeah. it and now their words are being yeah. taken away and from the, them and the well. reclamation of that word right mm -hmm. i sat in on a, a session with them a few months ago and they talked about you know let's let's reclaim redneck let's reclaim hillbilly let's talk about who these people really were these yeah really were and who we are and and how we can honor and hold space for the complexity of legacy because that's mm -hmm. what all of it is it's it's the complexity of identity it's the complexity of legacy yeah and something that's uniquely american i believe is how many times in which the oppressor from the oppressor rises a group of people that um are defending themselves to save to save their own lives their group of their people and how so many of those movements have crossover that can't seem to be identified because people are looking at the surface reason why they're fighting for rights or something like that, your race, your gender, your sexuality, et cetera. And not saying that literally so many aspects of all of those movements are interlinked if we combined in solidarity. I'm doing a lot yeah. more work myself in Black Asian solidarity groups. And for the first time, I didn't realize as, as a Black Asian person how much crossover was happening there, even as I walked through life as a Black Asian person. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I think that there is this misunderstanding that all of this is uniquely American. It absolutely is not. It is not. I was just in um, Paris and, and Versailles recently. And one of the things that I do when I travel, I've been traveling abroad a lot this year. I've been to Lebanon. I've been to Italy. I'm heading to Cuba in two weeks. Is I'm always very interested in a couple of things. I'm interested in how women are showing up in community, particularly around sexual violence. I'm interested in the LGBTQ community. I found an underground LGBTQ community when I was in Lebanon and got invited to a drag mm -hmm. show while I was there. Um, oh, wow. I'm interested in economically, like what's infrastructure, what's happening sociopolitically. And so when I was in France um, just a week and a half ago, I was specifically interested in the Black French experience. And so I did two things that were very enlightening for me, all of which I had not read before in any history books. I have some working knowledge, of course, of, of France Fanon and and um, Richard Wright moving to Paris. And when we think about even at the Panthe Pantheon just recently, Josephine Baker being inducted, the first Black woman. So those things I knew about, but I had a tour of the Louvre that was specific to Black representation 
mm. in art from the 16th to the 19th century by a white woman who's an art historian who out of her six grandchildren, four of them are biracial. And she talked about how in art represented in the Louvre, that blackness shows up in a myriad of ways. One as saint, sainthood. We think about the Magi, the, the three wise men, the one black wise man, right? That, that black people are refined too and close to deity too. And then she said as, as strangeness, exotic, mm, mm. othered. Then through the institution of slavery, then mm. abolition, and then finally sensuality, but not in an exploitative mm. way, but in the way that the, the black body politic is beautiful. And then when I was preparing to travel and to meet particularly the black walking tour, the person who was the guide of that tour, I found this amazing book and I ordered it. It's called Reimagining Liberation. And it's how black women transform citizenship in the French empire. And mm. the very beginning of this book, it's written by a professor at the University of Michigan. I don't know her, but I immediately emailed her. Two hours later, she emailed me back. <laughs> but it starts with this story and this resonated. And I think for our community of mixed race folks, this might be really interesting. In August 1944, as General Philippe Leclerc marched into Paris to liberate the city from German occupation, Andre Bluin marched into the mayor's office in Bangui, a French territory in Central Africa, to obtain a quinine card for the malaria treatment that would save her two-year-old son, Renee. Quinine cards were for Europeans only, and the mayor let the distraught woman know this in no uncertain terms. As the daughter of an African mother and a European father, Bluin was classified by colonial law as Matisse, or mixed race, a status that extended to her son. Colonial guards dragged her out of the office as she screamed, I am a French citizen, the same as you, and so is my son. Yours is an accursed race, cursed authors of a murderous law. She then goes on to become a leading strategist with six African presidents mm. in Congo and Guinea and Ghana. And one of the things that I was talking about with the tour guide in, in Paris, he took me to um, a monument that's a monument to the abolition of slavery. And very similarly to Juneteenth here, they had a Juneteenth there too. Mm. The abolition happened. Enslaved people did not get the notification that they were free. Slavery was reinstated and then reabolished. And so when you think about, as he was talking and taking us through the city, there were so many parallels, parallel after parallel after parallel. I was saying, oh, this was just like, the Civil War in the United States. This was just like Jim Crow laws. This was just like, this was similar to, and that connection I think is so powerful in this book that it began with the story of a mixed race woman whose mm -hmm. child died and that she was radicalized to become an anti-colonial activist mm -hmm. because of the death of her son withheld because of one drop. Yeah. Right? The same one drop that dictated for decades and decades, centuries here. How oh, yeah, I, I definitely yeah. acknowledge that yeah. as, a, as a global thing. I think what I was referring to as uniquely American is how similar all the separate movements are mm -hmm. as they are operating, yeah. operating in the silos. And yeah. if they opened up those floodgates for the solidarity, they would see how much we would see how much crossover we have, whether it's Black Asian solidarity, Black white solidarity, white brown right. solidarity, yeah. you know, labor across. union work, labor I mean, union work. Right. There's so yeah. much. There's you're absolutely There's right. There's so, so much different. crossover. And I feel like, well, and may, maybe it is a, across across the globe too, but I, I feel like the American spirit part of it is the this can only exist here. This this black people, this only exists here. Asian people, it only exists like that, like that they don't we were the solidarity movements take a lot longer to break because we really feel like our experiences are unique within those silos, but it takes people intersectional people like us. I think that see, it's like, well then what silo am I in? Yeah. To try to open up those conversations that for me, I, I find that I, I ended up sitting more in blackness because my issues were more received in blackness than they originally were in Asian spaces and queer spaces, because I'm even just, recently kind of engaging in in where I'm 
realizing that ma mainstream with quotes mainstream queerness and brown mm -hmm. queerness is very different and so we we move in silos we're moving in silos yeah. even within the lgbtq community as well and white supremacy culture knows no bounds so knows no bounds system, right every yeah. system every movement when we think about a queer queer movement when we think about um other other grassroots movements that also have multi um, a multi-racial cohort there still is that hierarchy of white right. that yeah. and historical mistrust is real for mm -hmm. for for valid reasons mm -hmm. absolutely and and so i do think that you know one because of technology just the technological age that we happen to be born into and living in right now there's more access mm -hmm. there's still a lot of willful ignorance and i think about how difficult it is even traveling abroad to find specific experiences. I've, I've found a, a very specific Afro-Cuban um, experience with some economists that I'm gonna be having when I had to, oh, but you know, seeking those out and thinking about what it means to be in relationship with what's reciprocal mm -hmm. relationship, right? And how does power because we can't have these conversations about race without also yeah. talking about the dynamics of, of power and how we hold how we hold identity. Yeah. yeah. Going back a little bit to sort of how you opened introducing yourself, acknowledging racial biracialness, acknowledging ethnically the different places that your ethnicity comes from, acknowledging culturally differently how your ethnicity um, and culture speak to each other. Do you feel fluid in your in your identity through your race and ethnicity and culture or do you feel fixed in category is there a hierarchy to how you identify i primarily um and and so that's what's interesting right about identity identity is partly how we choose to show up and identify and then the other part of identity is how other people identify us mm -hmm. and i am often misidentified as latina um Same. particularly by people who um, are in the Cuban, Puerto Rican, Dominican. Mm -hmm. I'm in South Same. Florida. That happens happens a lot. And so sometimes my experience is is that of it's always of a of a person of color. It just shows up differently depending on where I am in the world. When I was in Lebanon, people assumed that I was Mediterranean. When I was in Italy recently, people assumed that I was Brazilian. And so there and because of these single narratives, I think about. Um, Chimamanda Adichie and her TED talk, The Danger of a Single Story. And she says, show a people as one thing is only one thing over and over again. And that is what they become. And so I think about like identity in terms of what I have become to some people based on a fixed perspective they have about a particular culture or identity. I am connected to Jewish heritage, not um, through faith, but through biology. I hold the identity mm -hmm. that I hold the most sacred is my black identity. Mm -hmm. What is interesting is in the past maybe year, 18 months, I get often questioned in corporate and institutional spaces by white people that I'm working with why I don't hold tighter to white identity. Mm -hmm. And when they ask, it's always with this, it feels as though there's this yearning or longing or feeling as though I am somehow shunning or putting down or, right. or not feeling connected to. And so what I, the way I typically respond is that my experiences have been as a woman of color. I do not experience the world as a white woman. Absolutely, I do not experience yeah. the world as, as a Jewish woman. I don't experience the, the, same, the world in the same way that my mother, my aunties, my grandmother mm -hmm. of Jewish heritage, of white heritage have experienced the world. I also recognize that because of my proximity to whiteness, my adjacency, my white adjacency, that I hold privilege. And so I feel incredibly responsible yeah, to dark-hued Black women, to dark-hued Black people about how I show up and what kind of space I'm taking up and how I can ensure that there's some additional access and that, that my perspective about Blackness is uniquely my own, your own. perspective, no matter how wild and, and how storied it is, it is still my perspective. I, I recently um, 
I had surgery. I had uh, spinal surgery uh, hmm. about two months ago. And so while I was recovering for a few weeks, I watched a lot of Netflix. I watched Passing and then I went right out and, and got the book. Um, which I'm almost finished with. And I also watched Colin Kaepernick in Black and White. And I remember watching that and having to pause it a lot because I was so pained that that was, that his, that that was his experience. Mm. I have such a very different white, radical mama experience. Right. We talked about race. She made sure that even when she was discomforted and mistreated in, in many instances by Black community, that it was important to her that we were surrounded by black community mm. because that was our community. So watching him suffer through all of that yeah. throughout his childhood and, and young adulthood was incredibly painful for me. It also illuminates, I believe, so clearly, so vividly, just the wide range, mm -hmm. and the nuance of mixed race experience in this world. Yeah, that, that was um, one of those things that it, took a minute to become obvious to me in starting militantly mixed is, you know, thinking with by accident, monolithic, monolithically thinking I wasn't thinking that way, you yeah. know, acknowledging that I saw black people, all different types. And yet still, if someone didn't behave like the black people I grew up with, you know, that coded a very specific way to me and, and hearing other people's mixed stories too, not realizing it, it made me feel like my mixedness was unique because most people didn't have um, all of their cultures around them at every given time where I actually did have all of my cultures around me at any given time. And, and all of that plays into the mixed person I've become through the show and talking to all the people is holding space for the experiences I've had, holding sp space for the experiences other people's had, and then finding a way of still connecting even if we have these vastly different things. But I same when I saw Colin's situation, I'm familiar with some of that because I did actually experience a little bit of that, but not to the degree that I feel like we got to see in his show. But I know the area that he grew up in too. And so I, I can see, I'm like, oh, absolutely. There's no, yeah, there's no absolutely. movement for him yeah. in that space. Um, yeah, that was, that was, that was really was tough. tough. You know, and most of, the, most of the, the biracial, black, white biracial people that I know, and I, um, during the pandemic, one of the groups that I joined was on um, Clubhouse and it's Black, White and other mixed with Black. And so I participated in that a couple of times. Yeah. yeah. And so hearing so many tragic stories, um, the tragic mulatto story, so many, there were so few of us in that space who were raised politically and raised politically black by a white parent, by a white mother. Mm -hmm. And so, so many people, as they shared stories about being disconnected from history, disconnected from culture, that wasn't my experience at all. It was um, very rooted in black community, but I was raised, and I was raised, and I was raised by my white Jewish mother. And so I think about possibility. And so mm -hmm. even in my own work, one of the, and I talk about this a lot in corporate spaces that I have to temper my own expectations because <laughs> my, my expectation of what white folks should be doing is real. Like they would get it. Yeah. I, and I know it's possible because I was raised with white people. My mother told me once that she believed there'd be a race war when I was about six. And when the insurrection happened, I called her. I said, you predicted this when I was mm -hmm. six. She said it would be similar to the civil war. What I remember most about that conversation was her saying, and I, recognizing that you and your sister would rise up as Black girls, as Black women, I, women, I would be willing to lay my white life down for your Black liberation. Mm -hmm. I don't know, uh, thousands of white folks willing to lay their white lives down, nor do right. I necessarily think that that is completely necessary. The dismantling and disruption of systems, absolutely. I also you know, think about my experience knowing that that level of solidarity as possible. And I feel just, I don't even have words to describe how how much gratitude I have for being grounded and centered in that level of solidarity. Mm -hmm. I recognize that that is very unique and not a typical experience, particularly for people who grow up. And in America, the black white experience because mm -hmm. of our history is one that is fraught with challenge in a different way, not 
more difficult, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that are not easier, but in a different way than other mixes. And that showed up in those conversations mm-hmm. I think, on clubhouses. People got very excited. So for me to meet people who were Black and Ashkenazi Jew, just like me, was very, yeah. very powerful. And having that many people from across the globe, I thought was was beautiful and inspiring. Yeah, because it's it's easy to believe you're the only one or you and your siblings are the only one. And if you and your sibling don't talk about this type of stuff, like in my case, my my full sibling, same parent sibling, not comfortable talking about it, doesn't identify the way that I identify. We're on pretty polar different sides of things. So in that case, the mm-hmm. world gets really small. You know, yeah. you are the only one in those kinds of moments. And when you do, it's weird that just those words like we're mixed with the same type of thing can be so validating in that moment, but it's just a step. It's a step towards you finding your own security within your identity as well. Acknowledging the fluidity, I think of identity is important, but I think also for me, because I I do identify hierarchically or the way that I describe my identity is hierarchical and that I'm black first and then Japanese. And then my whiteness is British whiteness that I grew up around. The other side of the whiteness is Appalachian and I didn't grow up around the person I got that from. So I don't, I don't identify with it. I just acknowledge its existence. The, the, the movement of constantly re-identifying, I think is important. And I didn't know that when I started the show, it's something that I think I'm just in having random conversations and it's not even something that someone explicitly said, I think it's really just like, Oh, I can, I can do that. Every, every conversation is, oh, I can do that. Right, right Charmaine? Because it's, it's also con- it's contextual. Mm-hmm. And so depending on where we live in the world, mm-hmm. right? if we live in the deep South, then Black identity, mixed race identity looks very different than yes. if you're in upstate New York or if you're in um, Nigeria yeah. or if you're in Paris, France or Cuba. And then I think about um, the policing of Black space for people who are deemed not black enough. And Mm -hmm. I've seen in my professional life, a lot of that happening, not so much because of the pandemic and George Floyd, but when I think about Rachel Dolezal and then more recently, the other professor who um, stole black um, Latina identity Mm -hmm. and what happened in professional social media spaces with people who identify as black because they have two black parents, two black grandparents and two Black great-grandparents saying, well, wait a minute, those of y'all who are mixed race, you should absolutely identify as biracial. Do not claim Blackness for yourself. And so I'm seeing that show up in corporate spaces where people are saying, well, I wanted to join the African-American Employee Resource Group, but I was told that I probably shouldn't join that group. I might need to join the BIPOC group instead, or maybe the Latino group because I'm not quite. And so seeing that level of... um, polarization mm-hmm. and disenfranchisement. I yeah. think some people who have held on to, um, like the first time I was told I wasn't welcome in an all black space um, as in, in a long time. I've, I've had that conversation, had mm-hmm. that experience as a child um, and in college many times, but it's been in the last two years that, and, and I conceded that my experience was a different experience. Mm-hmm. And I also wanted to honor this black space that had mm-hmm. been created by people who believe that our experiences were so different. And at the same time, that also felt hurtful because yeah. I have always identified as a black woman yeah. within black community. And at the same time, I also recognize that my very existence creates pain in black spaces. That's the heart of something that I've, I've talked about a few times and um, I, I can see it being met with resistance. Sometimes, sometimes people accept it because they understand what, at the core of what we're, we're talking about, but every now and then it's met with resistance. And, and it, it really is the dynamic is I don't think that we need to walk away from moments where we might be rejected in a, in a fully black space or, or whichever identity is, is blocking. I don't think we need to walk away with it feeling fully dejected from that. Right. I think it really is the case of safe spaces are important. Sometimes those safe spaces are anybody from the diaspora and that's a fi- fine and safe space to enter. Sometimes it really is 
the burden of the acknowledgement of the things that have happened to black Americans or any member of the um, transatlantic slave trade diaspora specifically, there is pain in the color of our skin. Sometimes there is pain and memory and generational trauma and all this other kind of stuff. And so there are times when there are spaces that people that do have two black parents, two black grandparents, at least if they don't go all the way back to great grandparents, can say like, I just want a space to exist in where that is also not part of the story. And I do think that is a fair thing. I I, I, I absolutely agree. I agree. And, you know, professionally, I've been holding space, um, caucus space. So right after George Floyd was murdered, several of the the large companies I was working with, big tech, Mm -hmm. um, manufacturing, healthcare, allowed us to come in and and have sessions for only black employees without Mm -hmm. the white gaze. Mm -hmm. And that had never happened before. And these are leaders within institutions and white folks got real antsy. Like, what are they gonna be talking about? And I just wanna be there because then I can better understand the black experience. And I said, no. So so when I was asked like to step aside and not be in a black space um, a few months ago, You know, I, I completely, I understand that. Yeah. I, I do understand that. And I think that you're right. It can be met with defensiveness. It can be met with extreme hurt. And I just think about in the ways I'm a survivor of sexual violence. My mm-hmm. perpetrator happens to be male. And so there are times when I am in sexual violence, survivor, mm-hmm. driver, um, spaces where it's all types of people, men and women and non-binary folk. And then there are times when I just need to be with women. Same. People who yeah. identify as yeah. women because my perpetrator was a man. And so I think to your point that those spaces, those brave spaces where people um, see themselves reflected yeah. is, is really important. And it's also okay that we're hurt in yeah. not getting the invitation, I think. I think that is also okay. Um, but just because we feel the hurt doesn't mean, okay, fine, just let it all, you know, just break it all open. I think safe spaces are important. I think, um, I think safe spaces that are specific are not the same thing as policing identity necessarily. And I think that's where the confusion and the detection comes in is where someone feels like, oh, you're actually claiming I don't have access to this identity. And I think that is a a different thing because you would maneuver as a black person, a black woman in most spaces, acknowledging that doesn't take away the fact that you were raised by a white Jewish mother or that you have proximity to whiteness. You still experience life a certain way. I experience life in an ambiguous racial way where someone knows I'm not white, even if I have white ethnicity. I, like you, I don't maneuver as a white person. I'll never maneuver as a white person. I'm not going to be accidentally right, <laughs> in right, any space. Right, the Federation of White Women and, and on the on the board, right? That's, yeah, like it's never going to happen. So in that case, you go down to what is the way people are identifying you? Am I Latine? Am I, um, you know, some different kind of brown they can't identify? Whatever it is, I'm just the other for them in that moment. And it's up for me to decide if they have access to my identity if I'm going to grant them permission to have access to my identity. So I think that stuff is important. I, I hope more people can see the re- the reasons why and the context cr- behind creating those kind of safe spaces and knowing that you at all times can create your safe space as well. Yeah. Uh, we could absolutely, I mean, militantly mixed is not an accident. I am a person who, although presenting ambiguously, um, whatever someone thinks I am, depending on where I'm in the world, very similarly, I'm Dominican in most um, places <laughs> um, yeah. um, on the East Coast, particularly in the South. Um, well, in Florida, I would definitely be Dominican. In Texas, I'm Black. In California, I'm Filipino. I'm not Filipino, but you know that's just right. the way that I'm seen because someone can tell there's some kind of Asianness going on. I think creating those spaces, it's fine. And I think, it, it, I, I think we just need a way to it's more about teaching people that they don't have ownership of every space right. to That's get right. us around that whole, right. oh, I feel, right. you know. That's right. That's right. But we are coming a little bit close to the end of the show. So one of the things, thank you so much for sharing everything you've shared today. I, I really appreciate it. And I look forward to hearing how we can access your, your film and everything like that. But before we do that, I do just like to ask all of my guests, because of sometimes we are talking about trauma and or difficult aspects of mixedness, I would like to end the show with what you love most about being a mixed person. 
I, I love the complexity. I really love the complexity. And the more that I understand my history, and I mean, from a historical perspective, the not the same, but parallel journeys, for example, of my grandparents and my great grandparents, I find so much joy in the fullness of that. And it does allow me, I believe, to have unique perspective about um, not so much intersectional identity. All of us have intersectional identity. It does give me unique perspective, particularly as I've chosen professionally to be on this path. It does afford me this um, insight, this insight that I wouldn't have before. And what I also relish, and I didn't realize this until recently, is all of the challenge, the hurt and the harm that has come from being a mixed race person, particularly of black and Jewish white descent in America. I am, I just have so much gratitude for that. It has allowed me, I believe, to have a deeper level of, of empathy for just our the complexity of our broader humanity. It does it does feel like sometimes there's an accidental mixedness is an accidental training ground for empathy and in a different way than other people access learning about empathy. It's just that we experience in our families, we see the differences between people and how we can still interact and things like that. So I think I think we're, we are kind of un, uniquely mm. trained in empathy. Um not that everybody doesn't have it, but no, I, access I mean, in a totally different you're way. You're absolutely right. And it's, and yeah. it's different, right? And I think too, trying to figure out um, early on where you do fit in and, mm -hmm. you know, that phrase, get in where you fit in, you fit. That's, that's not always so apparent. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and depending on where you, in, in Memphis, we knew one other mixed race family mm. and the mother was German and the father was a black radical activist. And he and our mom were really good friends. Oh, so you had validation within the, the yeah, activism so, personalities. So in like. our, so like in our, in, in Memphis, <laughs> I moved there and it was in the early seventies. Um, I was born in DC and moved to Memphis. And that woman, um, one of the daughters of that family, she is a, my sister is, is an attorney, labor and employment and civil rights. This woman is also an attorney, um, <laughs> has been doing um, like prison reform and, mm. and um abolition, prison abolition work her entire career. And and no, you know, no accident there because her yeah. father, her parents were were radical activists. And so that, but that was the one. And then then a few years later we met one other. So the mm. whole time that I lived in Memphis, I knew um two families. And when I think about my very early experiences as a child in Memphis, Tennessee in the 70s, in elementary school, teachers would stand at the front and they would do this every single year, once a year, and they would say, all of the black students stand up and then they would mark and count how many black students were in mm. a classroom. All of the white students stand up. So if there were Asian students, if there were Mexican students, you yeah. were either black or white. white I mean, yeah. that was it. There was, there was no other option. And I remember always having such tension around that, not because I didn't believe I wasn't black, but my, my, my friends, and they were mm -hmm. my friends. There was always some, you really should be standing up twice, like get up a second time, you know? So I always felt a lot of tension around that, not because mm -hmm. I didn't feel black, but that was the one time that I would feel that there was this spotlight that I was somehow different. Different, yeah. And that there was no, there was no category, not just for me, but for anybody who wasn't black or white. Yeah. And when I think about what an archaic, harmful way mm -hmm. to determine race, but that is yeah. how it was done. I can remember every year of elementary school, oh, it was the gosh. standing and the teacher counting. So think about that. If that is your foray into mm -hmm. understanding race, how limited, how marginalizing mm -hmm. that is, right? It yeah. doesn't, it, it's not expansive. Mm -mm. Yeah, no so nuance I, built in. No, nothing. No, nothing. Just like here's different day, everybody. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. Oh man. Um. So why don't you let everybody know how they can find you, and then if if the film is in a way of where people can access it while it's while it's in production, please let us know about that as well. Sure. So um, you can find me at www.whiteandwoke. 
white.org, W-H-I-T-E and W-O-K-E.org. Also, www.wearestraightallies.com. And there'll be news about the, the film be, through be news of those. on the film okay. through both All of right. those, those sites. I am so appreciative for this time um, to spend with you, to be in community with you, to be in community mm-hmm. with our community. It's yes. a beautiful, beautiful space, um, nourishing space that you have created. And I am so thankful for you and your work in our world. Thank, Thank you. you. So I appreciate it. Militantly Mix is a main hustle media podcast produced and hosted by me, Charmaine Fury. Music is by David Bogan, the one you can follow us on social media on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at militantly mixed. If you'd like to become a sponsor of militantly mixed, please go to patreoncom slash militantly mixed for monthly sponsorship or paypal.me slash militantly mixed for a one-time only donation. And if you like what you hear on Militantly Mixed, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to be your mixed-ass self. Main Hustle Media. Turn your side hustle into your main hustle.